We are continuing tonight with the commentary of the, and the attempt to explain it in a yogic way, of the spiritual teaching, of the spiritual message as delivered by Krishna to Arjuna in the fundamental text of Indian spirituality, the Bhagavad Gita. We are nearing the middle of the sixth chapter, which probably is the last chapter that we comment during this season since we have other themes awaiting. And um, we are going to start tonight with the strophe number 22, the shloka, as they are called in Sanskrit, number 22. Krishna is in the midst of a long, three, four, five shlokas long explanation about giving an image of the spiritual victory, giving an image of the spiritual accomplishment. And he gives so many details about it, details which are invaluable because they allow present-day spiritual practitioners, especially when we live in a, such a confused time like this Kali Yuga in which we live, it allows people to have a certain discrimination under the bombardment of a lot of contradictory information, Krishna's message can always be used as a standard, as a verification against all sorts of weird theories, out of which some may simply be erroneous. That's why reading the message of Krishna automatically gives us clarity and here is, of course, an example. In the shloka number 21, Krishna was defining, continuing to define the state of spiritual realization, saying when the yogi feels that infinite bliss, he described the spiritual state as accompanied by an infinite bliss, which can be grasped by the pure intellect, so not by the lower emotional mind and which transcends the senses, so it's not of the five or six senses, and established wherein he never moves from the reality with a capital R, which means, of course, that as long as being in that state of consciousness, one indeed has a fulcrum in reality, in this quest for reality, which the human beings do. And now he continues in the strophe number 22 of the chapter 6. He says, which having obtained, he thinks there is no other gain superior to it. Wherein established, he is not moved even by heavy sorrow. But two more characteristics of this supreme accomplishment, of this supreme reality. First, he says, having gained which, he counts no other gain as higher. People that have gained spiritual realization always say nothing else in this universe can compare to that. There is nothing higher than that. It is a way of translating the statement of Jesus who says, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all the rest shall be given to you afterwards. It is the same way in which Jesus says, 
If your right arm prevents you from reaching the kingdom of heaven, cut off your right arm because it is better to reach without your right arm than not to reach at all. Jesus is one example, but when you read Ramakrishna, Rumi, Milarepa, Gautama, Buddha, you always find the same opinion time and again. Spiritual people, either in Buddhism or in Sufism or in Christianity or in Vedanta or in the Tantric tradition, they seem to have one common sweet obsession. All of them think that the spiritual realization is worth dying for. They think that nothing, life, death, wealth, fame, health, this solar system or anything in the universe can measure up with the spiritual realization. That's why when it comes to spiritual realization, as we tell you in the Ishvara Pranidhana lecture in the first level of yoga in this school, people are even doing things which are socially unacceptable. Buddha leaves his wife, which was a tragedy for a wife in that century, and leaves his son, newborn son, and leaves his parents, and leaves his duties and obligations to just go in the forest and be a vagabond, be a hobo, with the hope not guaranteed to him by anybody, because Buddha didn't even have a guru in this respect, with the hope that he was going to find a solution to the problems of pain, suffering, death, illness, old age, and all that. Therefore, here you are having something which is purely subjective, which having obtained, he thinks there is no other gain superior to it. People who are not into the spiritual realization or people who don't have an overwhelming aspiration for it, which automatically qualifies them towards it, people who are outside of this privileged minority, they can never understand what the heck is the matter with all these spiritual people of the top level. All the top level spiritualists they are completely fanatic about their spirituality and they say there is nothing which can come even close to that. You wouldn't exchange it for anything else. Jesus alludes to this in so many parables. The kingdom of heaven, says Jesus in a real weird parable, is like the man who sold everything he had and with that money he bought a pearl, a peerless pearl, and then he would have that instead of everything. It expresses the same idea. The kingdom of heaven is worth everything you've got in your life, people, objects, anything. It is the highest good. In a certain way, people can doubt this statement. They can say, Swami, subjectively, there are people in the madhouses who think they are Napoleon or Albert Einstein. The fact that some people in their heads believe some things doesn't automatically make those things true. That is why, strictly from the standpoint of psychology, and this is one of the real terrible trends in Kali Yuga, where as 50 years ago already, great metaphysicians said religion has been replaced 
by psychology. People don't believe in religion, they believe in psychology. And therefore, in such an environment, it is very easily to question the mental sanity of spiritual people. Not only that one like Ramakrishna was considered crazy by his own family and others, and maybe indeed Ramakrishna was having uh, a, an extreme behavior. But I remember when I was a teenager, I would read in a French magazine an article about Therese Neumann, the Roman Catholic stigmatist from South Germany, which Paramahamsa Yogananda visited during his life, and which actually who is part of a chapter of the autobiography of a yogi. Therese Neumann was put in that book not as a demonstration, allegedly by Yogananda, that look, there are exceptional people who produce miracles, who live miraculously, even in the West. Therese Neumann was famed for the fact that she never ate and she never drank. The only things which Therese Neumann ate and drank were produced by the Christian Eucharist, the communion on Sunday, which means she drank, she ate the wafer gave, given for her communion and perhaps a drop of red wine. But a wafer, a wafer and a bit of red wine would never keep anybody alive for a week. Therese Neumann was corpulent. She was fat, basically. Therese Neumann was doing agricultural gardening work in the garden of her father. She was not lying in a hammock, immobilized the whole day. She was an active person. And every Thursday night, when Therese Neumann relived the drama of the crucifixion, of the passion of Christ, Therese Neumann sweated more than a kilo of sweat and blood, which was staining her clothes and which was there like a person who loses lots of blood body fluids, lots of red blood corpuscles. So it's not definitely a person who is in a state of suspended animation, frozen without metabolism somewhere. Therese Neumann was researched by the Nazis, the Nazis in their iconoclastic attempt to destroy religious symbols and to replace them with the religion of the Third Reich, they simply wanted to prove if Therese Neumann was not a crook. And they surrounded the house with soldiers. She was kept under military guard for one year and more to see where she goes, what does she eat, her behavior. And everybody, even this military Nazi style of surveillance revealed nothing. Therese Neumann was not eating, was not cheating in any way, and yet she was living in this miracle. And when I'm a teenager, I read an article written years after her death in the Kali Yuga in the 70s already, where somebody writes a smart article in a main trend French magazine which is called Serene, I'm translating the name from French, I won't say it in French, but it was the perfect translation of this, the literal translation of this. The article was called Therese Neumann, Saint or Hysteric. Like psychologically, you can always say that Therese Neumann, like Ramakrishna, had the behavior of a hysteric. 
there is a movie which we put on your list of spiritual movies, which we are building up, by the way, for our spiritual cinema club on Mondays, and more if you will ask for more, in which, which is called Agnes of God. It's a 30-year-old Jane Fonda movie, in which Jane Fonda is a psychologist that inquires on an hysterical Catholic, Roman Catholicism is always the target number one for Hollywood and the likes of them, the a Roman Catholic nun from Canada, and of course everything is drawn in the direction like surely it could easily be hysteria, like most of the religious phenomena are drawn into or towards hysteria, and that is why, yes, Krishna says, which that state, which that accomplishment, which having obtained, he thinks there is no other gain superior to it. He thinks, but other people might not think so. Other people might simply say, you are Bazako. You believe in God and in some nirvana and that it's worth dying for it and the kingdom of heaven is worth anything. It's simply not there. That's why there are people, and this was one of the favorite themes in the denigration of Christ himself in communist countries, in the Eastern European communist bloc, that Jesus was suspected, and there is literature in Mikhail Bulgakov and others, not, of course, inspired from the French existentialists and others, in which Jesus himself is presented like a schizophrenic. There are movies made about Jesus, in which Jesus is like possessed by some weird thing and from time to time he keeps doing a miracle but he doesn't know what hit him and he says, God, why me? Why, like I could just get myself a wife and two kids, why do I have to save the world? Which is completely absurd from a yogic standpoint. Like It's like you have a totally innocent victim who is possessed by an incomprehensible and cruel God. And then that person is like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's split. It's a schizo. In many places, even Jesus was treated like if you wanted to ironize, to ridiculize Jesus, they would treat him. Maybe Jesus was schizophrenic after all. And that's why here we are having a very sobering thought. Is spirituality only in the mind of the person is spirituality. And I often tell to people when we hold the lecture on Ishvara Pranidhana, Ishvara Pranidhana, the surrender, the devotion, the aspiration, is like the person is contaminated by a strange virus. Suddenly you are hit by love for God. And many people will tell you there is no God. And many people will tell you, even if you love God, love is an emotion and it's something very superficial and it shows desire and attachment and it won't lead you to God. Even if you do that, some people will say, well, it doesn't, some other people, I'm simply rebuffing it with various theological and uh, other theories in which people will say, well, your love of God means nothing because God has already decided who is going to be saved and who not. And if you make a 25% extra effort, that won't change the mind of God anyway because you are just an insignificant tiny ant in a corner of the universe and you cannot change the cosmic consciousness. Therefore, there would be so many theories which would say whatever happens in your mind 
is like a disease. And that's why I even opened the idea saying, okay, maybe some people think that the spiritual aspiration and the spiritual realization, it's a purely subjective thing. It's in your mind. Who can demonstrate that Ramakrishna is right? It is true that occasionally, not very often, it never happened in the case of Ramana Maharishi, it never came, happened in the case of many other great yogis, but occasionally, and that's the, that's the juice, that's the sap of much of the spiritual life, people talk about miracles. Like Jesus without his miracles would definitely have been labeled more like an idealist, a hippie, a hobo, a vagabond, and maybe a schizophrenic. After all, what could he prove? The disturbing factor is when one of these people who thinks that because I obtained this, I obtained the supreme gift in the universe, to which many people say, yeah, right, in your head, when such a person also produces miraculous effects, such as healing the lepers, giving sight to the blind, walking on water, raising the dead, or some others which might not be as spectacular as that, but still are there. That is why always when the demonic entities are trying to destroy people's faith, they are doing two things. They sow doubts about the miracles, like they say, have you been there? Have you seen it with your own eyes? Then how do you know? No, there, is, uh, there are so many other explanations or possibilities. Maybe it's trumped up. Maybe it's made up. That's one way to shake your faith. And the second is, of course, to show that miracles do not require anything spiritual. The kind of thing which when you see whatever this magician, Chris Shepard, or whatever his name is, walking on water, floating through the air, people say, so this is just a street magician doing demonstrations. And, you know, if Jesus walked on water like this guy called Chris something, then it's like, what if there was a trick to it? it we are 2,000 years later. We don't know what setup was made there was about the different things, you know, even the resurrection, as I was telling last Sunday, is one of the milestones, is one of the things which is most controversial, because if you take the resurrection from Jesus, either you say Jesus was in a clinical death and they gave him valerian or I don't know what, and they revived him and they sent him to Srinagar, where he lived happily for the rest of his life, and so on, then automatically you take exactly that part which could constitute into a sort of circumstantial evidence. There is no way to demonstrate that the spiritual realization is the best thing one can get. That's what spiritual people feel. And when you will reach states of samadhi, you will say your mind will be formatted in such a way in which it will say that's the best. That's absolutely the best. Nothing can compare to that. But what, is, what if it is a rare mental disease? Then, of course, a miracle would somehow bring something like, okay, 
what sort of mental disease is that one which makes you transmute lead into gold or raise the dead or heal the lepers or do this or do that? If it's a mental disease, maybe we should all get that mental disease because it's a very, it seems to be a very useful mental disease. It seems to be a very profitable mental disease then. And that is why um, there is this angle to it. Or again, showing that the so-called miracles can be explained with prana, can be explained with hypnosis, can be explained with tricks of the mind, and then you follow in the line of the, especially NLP people of today, a la Darren Brown and uh, Paul McKenna and the likes, who constantly try to say there is no miracle. There is a wonderful episode of the tricks of the mind of Darren Brown, in which Darren Brown takes a number of some ten people in a hall and does some of his hocus-pocus, and at least a few, if not all the people in the hall, are touched deeply emotionally and they start shedding tears and they declare that they just had an incredibly special religious experience. And then Darren Brown says, the organizers say, in the end of the program everybody was deprogrammed and they were returned to their normal beliefs. Like, you know, you have a feeling that you see the Dalai Lama and suddenly you feel touched and you feel like you want to convert to Buddhism and you believe in Shambhala and in Buddhism more because you've been in the presence of a spiritual person. And somebody like Darren Brown comes and says, it's just hypnosis. It's just mass hysteria. Even I, even I, Darren Brown, can trigger some things. If you give me half an hour, I can make you feel five times more than you felt in the presence of any Lama or Swami or Guru or anything. And therefore, the, the argument to this would be, therefore, even the miracles are much less than they are supposed to be. And even the miracles don't demonstrate anything. From a spiritual standpoint, this is of course the demonic nature and the demonic planes, the demonic entities that are trying to cover any evidence of spirituality to keep the human soul's prisoner into a condition in which the human being says there is nothing else. You just have to be born, you have to learn, you have to work, you have to procreate and then you are going to hell anyway because there is nothing after your death and that's it. Live a flat life without hope. Live a depressive materialistic life in which all you can get is temporary sensory satisfactions, temporary material satisfactions. Therefore, here it's a very sobering thought again because it tells you that even Krishna, in the way he formulates this, he's aware of the dilemma. Although Krishna is all for it, all for the spiritual truth, you can tell to Krishna, of which Krishna you having obtained, you think that there is no other gain superior to it. And Krishna will probably shrug his shoulders and say, sure, if you want to take it that way, sure. Be my guest. Like, of course you can say that. And again, sometimes great avatars who are entrusted with missions might bring miracles as support to their statements, 
but there, those miracles don't, even, don't logically demonstrate the statements. Those miracles, if they are true, when they are true, even they cannot demonstrate that moksha, mukti, nirvana, enlightenment really exists and it's the greatest existential thing which is there. That's why, please realize always, a truth which is said very clearly in Kashmiri Shaivism, the spiritual realization is a purely subjective factor. It is something which exists in you and people say, right, so does it mean that if you 100% believe in it, that's the way it is? Yes, but you cannot believe in it. For example, Laleshvari, the poetess of Kashmir, she was asked, how is the story of your enlightenment? And she says, my guru told me of my identity with Shiva and I believed him. End of story. But it's a matter of believing indeed. The, this impish people who have gone into NLP and others, not all of them are really demonic, but some have this impish tendency there. They were trying to demonstrate all the time that faith and other such things can be manufactured, can be faked in different ways. There is a story which I used to tell in evening lectures, even at the first level when it comes to it, that Bandler or Grinder, one of those, there comes a young man looking hippie with hair and beard, with long hair and beard, and he says he's Jesus. And he says, I'm sent to you because my family thinks I have a problem, because I think I'm Jesus. And Bandler or Grinder, whoever that eminent psychologist was, says, and are you Jesus? At which the guy immediately goes into character and he says, yes, my son. At which this guy immediately, he knows the weak point of all this because he studied exactly this mechan those mechanisms of the mind. And he says, just wait a second. And he leaves the guy in his consultation room and he gathers hardly some materials. He comes after half an hour with planks of wood, with a hammer, with nails, with carpentry tools and starts manufacturing things in the middle of the consultation room. And then this guy says, are you Bandler, the psychiatrist? Yes, he says. Well, he said, I came here for a psychiatric consultation. At which the guy says, but didn't you say you are Jesus? And the guy falls immediately back into his madness. And he says, yes, my son. And then Bandler says, then you know what I'm doing here. And when this guy looks, Bandler was manufacturing a cross with the obvious intention of crucifying this dude on a cross. And then this guy yells and runs out of the consultation room, screaming, man, you are more fucked up than me. <laughs> because Grinder or Bandler managed to demonstrate to him that if you believe that you are Jesus 100%, maybe you are. But you, dude, you are not believing 100%. Because here is the cross. And you won't climb on it, would you? So you don't believe 100%. If I'm pushing you beyond a certain wild limit, you will collapse and you will show your real face. You will show that you only profess to believe that you are Jesus, but when put through the meat grinder, you, will co you would collapse and chicken out. That is why, of course, the, the demonstration in itself is true. 
psychologically. And that is why the statement of Laleshwari is true. She says, my guru told me I am Shiva and I believed him. Not 50%, not 80%, 100%, like my life could depend on that. My life could simply be equated to that. That is 100% belief. Jesus believed that he was Jesus and the Messiah, 100%. Ultimately, everything is an identification with a role. You can tomorrow get the funny idea, I am the second Messiah or I am a savior of some sort. The question is, will you be able to live up to it? Do you really believe in it? Because theoretically, if you believe in it 100%, then you would start doing what the other one did. And you would be able to change the world. But you would not be able to push it. Even the faith of Jesus was tested. Like, hey, Jesus, Israeli weirdo, you think you are going to save the world. Would you go on a cross? Would you let the Romans crucify you for that? And Jesus had to choose, and he sweated blood. And he prayed, and he said, let this cup be taken off my lips. And when he was on the cross, he lamented, my God, my God, why have you left me? What an incredible ordeal this has been, because Jesus did not have any foolproof proof that he was that except the fact that he knew it, he felt it, he knew it in his heart of hearts, that he was it. Exactly like in the movie The Matrix, when you say about the one, the oracle tells him, when you are the one, you know that you are the one. You don't need me, the oracle, to tell you that you are the one or you are not the one. So as long as you come and ask me, am I, could I be the one? The answer is no, of course. Because you should come and tell me, I know that I am the one. And then I would take off my head and I would say, indeed, you are the one. This is the miracle of the faith, but if it is not complete, it can become mental insanity. Stanislav Grof says, schizophrenics and other crazy people drown in the same waters in which mystics swim with relish. A mystic says, I am saved by Jesus, and the schizophrenic gets electric shocks in the hospital because he is not able to go where the mystic has gone. He is having a tormented, partial faith in which from time to time he gets funny ideas, but his soul is not into it, the aspiration is discontinuous, and therefore he is basically experiencing a tormented unhealthy, insane perception of the spiritual truths. I have seen cases in which it was demonstrated that autistic, schizophrenic people can produce minor miracles, or if you don't want to call them miracles, paranormal phenomena. I have seen schizophrenic people who would cut themselves with a knife, and then they would just go like this, tetanic, into a tetanos contraction, and do a sort of incredible trataka on their hand, and the bleeding would stop, and the wound would close. 
exactly like in the case of some sleepwalkers and other possessed people who can get incredible wounds or can resist swords or cannot get burned in boiling oil or do some other, cut themselves with knives, pierce themselves, do incredible, cut off the tip of their tongue and then stick it back and it would glue back and so on, which are all phenomena of a paranormal nature produced by a sort of a hysterical faith. But sometimes this hysterical faith becomes collective hysteria which leads to nowhere as it is whipped up in so many evangelist churches and firebrand preachers and others like those. And sometimes it is simply pathological. It is accompanied by pain. It is not accompanied by an infinite bliss which transcends the senses. It is not accompanied by immortality and this and that. That's why the problem of spirituality is very difficult. And that's why to, until today, modern science, as sophisticated as it is, does not manage to demonstrate, and I would say, or infirm anything about spirituality. The spiritual things... They have put under EEG and uh, RMN, tomographic, CAT scan readings, people doing meditation, people doing lucid dreaming, people doing this and that, all sorts of paranormal things, even perhaps some of the states of samadhi. And all they can say is that when somebody is in this state, the temporal lobes are firing, or the occipital lobe goes berserk, or the prefrontal cortex is doing this and that. Good, you just told me which part of my brain gets activated if I am doing Taraka Yoga or astral projection. So what? It does not tell me if actually there is astral projection. Because this fact that my prefrontal cortex gets activated can have two explanations. One, that it's all in my head and there is nothing else, period. Or it could be that there exist forms of energy unidentified by science until now and that my prefrontal cortex becomes active because it downloads some information from that field of energy which is out there, and therefore my prefrontal cortex is just a downlink from a satellite-like source, and thus the source of the experience is not in the brain. But this cannot be demonstrated anymore by just this type of neurological research. And that's why some people can interpret it as a reinforcement of their materialism and skepticism. And some people can interpret them as sure, yeah, nerve science, brain science has made some interesting breakthroughs, although they are missing the most important part of the puzzle because they see only the tip of the iceberg and they can't really explain 90% of what is unseen in this process. That is why we always tell you spirituality is a matter of great courage because you are having an internal perception and sometimes you are ready to play your life on one throw of the dice. And if it's just that you think that there is no gain superior to it and that's just some sort of mental disease, maybe the 
0.01% of the world population that are active spiritual seekers, maybe they are damaged goods. A certain number of the world population has genetical disorders such as hemophilia or I don't know what other, they are predisposed to Alzheimer's or to cancer or to this or that. Maybe that's just that. Maybe yoga and spirituality is gathering all the damaged goods of the world because the people who do spirituality, they have this sort of fanatic belief that sure, we believe in something and we believe there is nothing better than that and it makes us happy. But there are people who are made happy by picking up garbage on the street or performing all sorts of little maniacal operations like picking up pebbles on the beach or I don't know what and they are just autistic weirdos. And that is why it is, we always tell to people scientifically as many, pro, pro, as many progress as it is given to you today, we can even duplicate some spiritual states either with a God helmet, as it is called, a parapsychologic, psychologic medical device, just Google God helmet and you are going to see what it is, or with some brain machines, or maybe with some other radionic and other device, some of it purely electronic, or with Darren Brown putting you into some hypnosis NLP thing and you feel that God touched your heart or God knows what, and you are deeply touched and subjectively you could swear that that is it, but actually it, you can limit the explanation to the physiological things. And that is why I'm telling you this openly because everybody should know better in advance than later that spirituality is a bet. It is like the bet of Pascal. It could be this way and it could be that way. And you have to see what you choose. And Pascal made this brilliant bet which drives atheists insane and Richard Dawkins and others, they tried to twist it to change it by some absurd uh, hypothesis in which Pascal demonstrates that if between believing and not believing, if the spiritual reality exists or doesn't exist, it's actually logically worth it to believe because you don't stand to lose anything if you believe and there is nothing. You are going to get to the primal chaos anyway and you are not standing to lose anything more than somebody who didn't believe. But on the contrary, if you believed and things are that way, then you stand to gain everything. And that's the, it's a short version of the bet of Pascal, so-called. That is why in spirituality, there is a bet of Pascal. There is no way in which science until today has demonstrated spirituality as much as some people want to believe. Neither Kirlian photography nor a hundred other things cannot really demonstrate ultimately more than some things. And it is my understanding of it that that's exactly the way the cosmic consciousness would have it. Like you have to make a leap of faith. Demonstration is not really possible. Even miracles are on the edge. I cannot refer to the miracles of Jesus because again they are processed so much by human history but I have 
been second-hand witness to miracles which happened in the modern life, people taking out of their wheelchairs, but not in a collective frenzy of collective hysteria by some evangelical cult or something, but just like that, by the touch of a yogi, and then those people two months later had lost it. They had relapsed in the wheelchair, and they were not doing yoga, they were not practicing, they were not praying, they were not hoping, they were not trying to stick to the moment of light which had been given to them. And that's why this is a very scary statement, ultimately, because it says you have to follow your heart, but there is no way of demonstrating that your heart is right. Exception made, of course, the subjective factor that Buddha says, if I live one day more in this palace, I will go nuts. I prefer to hang myself than to live in this luxurious palace anymore. It's a little bit like a mental disease. It's like maybe he should have been put in a straitjacket and perhaps people in a near future who have spiritual inclinations, they will be sedated and put in straitjackets if Big Brother continues this policy of destroying spirituality in the minds and hearts of people, ridiculing it and making it appear more and more as just some form of abnormality, which is exactly the direction in which things go. So, which having obtained, he thinks there is no other gain superior to it, so subjective, but so firm, like Vivekananda asks Ramakrishna, where is this God which you keep talking about? Can you see him? And Ramakrishna says, I can see God more clear than I can see you. Now, hysterical, straitjacket, treat him, give him electric shocks. No, because that's not a demonstration. The fact that somebody says, I can see God, it's like, go seek help, you know. It's like, maybe it's just a very severe degree of a mental disease that you have reached there. Of course, intuitively, we can see that people like Milarepa and Saint Teresa of Avila and Mananda Mai and Ramakrishna seem to go into the direction of morality, ethics, love, compassion, a greater good, a greater understanding, wisdom, and other such high values. So it seems to be a pretty benign disease, if it's a disease, laden with all sorts of harmonious gifts, actually. But at the same time, people will point to the fact that Ramakrishna and the Milarepa and the Saint Teresa of Avila didn't always have an easy life without problems. After all, Ramakrishna and Ramana Maharishi died of cancer, both of them. So it's like, you know, then you say, okay, you feel very happy in your life, and then maybe you think you have to take upon yourself the sins of the world, and then you get a cancer at the age of 50, and maybe that sucks ultimately, you know. It's like, I'm sure you are happy in your own inner forum, but is that, like, if you try to have a judgment if that is good, I'm afraid nobody, from Jesus to Buddha, nobody can give you a proof and the judgment of that, because everything is 
somehow circumstantial. Jesus, the fact that he has the power to raise somebody from the stretcher, a paralyzed man from a stretcher, he still does not demonstrate that he is the Son of God through that. But of course, he relies on the fact that people are credulous and impressionable, and if the demons can use that against you, then Jesus says, I can fight with the weapons of the enemy, and I can use that for you. I'm going to make a hocus-pocus, and then your faith is going to be increased. And it doesn't matter if my hocus-pocus was really making that point or proving anything. The point is that it had an effect on you. In a similar trend, Osho Rajneesh, in a much more provocative way, he says, if I have been out of this room, which is nirvana, and you are in this room, which is samsara, and have been here for the rest of your life, nobody knows what's outside, only I, which again, I could be just mentally bizarre, and I am coming and telling to you, let's get out there to see how wonderful it is. And there are two ways. Either I tell you, out there, there is jungle, there is a lot of green, there is a pond, there is a lot of wonderful stuff. Why don't you want to see it? Aren't you bored with what is here? Which means I'm tempting you with nirvana. And then Osho Rajneesh, in his typical provocative style, he says, I can also light a piece of smoky clothes in a corner of the room and start shouting, fire, fire, there is a fire in the room, get out, you know, call the emergency. And everybody will kind of run towards the door and people will get out and eventually it will be proved that I cried for the wolf when there was no wolf. It was a lie. It was a white lie, he says. And But when you'll get out of that door, you will come back and thank me and say, well, you lied to us, you cheated us. There was no real fire. Huh? There was no real danger. But you got us out of the door. If you wouldn't have put that fire under our asses, maybe we would have lingered in the room much more, thinking, hmm, this dude speaks about something called nirvana, which is just out that door. Should we believe him? Hmm, it sounds a little bit incredible. And we could have split the hair and do, did philosophy, but of course we called it, it's our freedom. We can use our free choice, our free will, we could have analyzed your sayings for a hundred years. Like this, you did it in a manipulative way, Alexander the Great style, like why sit and try to untie an impossible knot when you can simply take the sword and cut it in a second. In the same way, you can say why not simply use some, something to go there, some, uh, the white lie, says Rajneesh. So that is why I'm saying again, it is very good to know that the mind has not found any way to ascertain the spiritual realization. The spiritual realization until now has not been embraced by anyone's mind and for everybody the pure spiritual part remains an act of consciousness and it remains a purely internal, purely subjective act. That is why Krishna here is frighteningly accurate, saying, which having obtained, he thinks there is no other gain superior to it, wherein established, he is not moved even by heavy sorrow. That sounds a little bit better. It says, if you have reached that, even if heavy sorrow might still befall you, you are not going to be 
moved by this heavy sorrow. Again, it's a bit subjective. Some people say maybe you are turning into an insensitive animal. Maybe your detachment, your dispassion is becoming so deep that people die around you and you say, don't cry, don't weep. They are just asleep. They are on the other side of the reality. It's like, you know, and you are not afflicted by sorrow. All your family dies. The world goes upside down. This and that happens. You yourself may be sick with cancer, Allah Ramakrishna. You yourself may lose everything like Job in the Bible. You yourself may be afflicted by I don't know what and what. And you say, don't worry. When the spirit is submerged in nirvana, nothing matters. Everything is okay the way it is. It is all subjective. Like people will say, you know, but some people would say, indeed, that's what we are looking for. We are looking for a way out of the sorrow. When Buddha wanted to run in the forest to find the solution, he was horrified by pain, by suffering, by sorrow. And he went heroically in the jungle to find the solution to the problem of suffering. The first noble truth is that the, the nature of existence is suffering because there is old death, there is death, there is disease, there is ignorance, and therefore there is suffering under various forms all throughout the human life. So the first noble truth of the Buddha is that existence is characterized by suffering. And then, of course, Buddha goes, let's find a solution to that. And he says that the fourfold or the eightfold path, whatever is called, his teaching, his doctrine is a way or the way, maybe, out of the suffering. That's what it is. People want to go out of the suffering. And here Krishna says, it may be just in your mind, but as far as you are concerned, when you reach that state in which you think that there is no other gain superior to that, being established in it, that you will not be moved even by heavy sorrow. Because remember, in life everything is 50% yin, and if 50% yang, every mountain is followed by a valley, and every valley is followed by a mountain. It is not possible to live only on joy all the time. Even the joyous people, even the optimistic people, they have to endure sorrows, only that they take them in a different way from the pessimistic people. But the sorrows are the same. Even optimistic people lose children, life partners, get abandoned, get a cancer, see all sorts of dear people dying around them, they get robbed, they get mugged, they get... Even optimistic people get that, so there is no way to stop that. The question is how you take it. In today's books of self-improvement, they always praise Cor Coronel Sanders, or whatever his name is, the guy who blessed us with the Kentucky Fried Chicken that apparently he proposed his recipe of uh, my mom's preferred chicken. I will teach you how to make a killing, a killer chicken. 
he proposed it more than 3,000 times to 3,000 managers, companies, and people, and everybody turned him down. And they said, you are just a dreamy old man, you know. You think you are going to sell some recipe for a chicken? And then he created Kentucky Fried Chicken, which you can find in Bangkok. You probably can find one in Koh Samui even. You know, it's like, and it's, it's given as a proof that you should never give up. You should not take a no for a defeat. Even if you get a no 3,000 times, you should try the 3,001st time. That's exactly what we are talking about here. It's not that peop everybody, some people don't get sorrow, but some people are not moved by the sorrow. Some people will say, oh, but that's insensitive. Right, then be sensitive and be moved by the sorrow. It's fine by me. Milarepa wanted not to be moved by the sorrow and wanted to live in this infinite bliss, which may be a self-suggestion of one's mind, ultimately, as far as some things are concerned. This is how spirituality is. That is why spirituality is not for everybody. You need to have a voice in your heart, an aspiration, which simply tells you that is right. I, being a guru of tantric yoga, of course I am describing to you the marvels and the legends, the beautiful things of the spiritual life, because I myself am moved by those, and I myself have had my faith shaped by those. There have been people in the yoga school who going into scientific research, they even cut off some of the legs of my faith. They simply said, you know, Swami, this story with uh, Peregrino Ernetti and so on is not really quite accurate because it was demonstrated that that so-called Akasha photo made by Ernetti with his time googling machine or something actually was copied. It's a fake. There was some forgery thing in it because uh, there was a previous drawing made by a nun in Spain or in France that can be true. But the fact that you cut one, two, ten, or ninety-nine legs of that, it doesn't change the fact that when I build my ladder to that level, I used those. And somebody says, so Swami, you might have used some faith arguments which were rotten. Lucky me. I just believed in some things which took me up anyway because I believed in them. Some people will say, perhaps, Swamiji, pity you, you know, maybe you are um, the most mentally insane person in the house, you know, and that all that, as you said, it's all just a phantasmagoria. That is why, again, we speak openly about the spirituality in this way, because there is no need for me to tell you stories. People die for stories. I constantly tell people who tell you, I have done this, I have uh, been in your mind, I have been in your soul, I can see the future, I am the light of God incarnated on earth, and all story, all sorts of, um, I don't know how to say, tremendous stories, and people shed tears, and they kowtow, and they crawl, and they tremble, and they go like this, because the truth is, 
that many, many people and in spirituality as engineering like as you want to make it, people actually need to believe some things. People desperately want to believe. We had a schizophrenic guy four years ago who came and announced suddenly in the middle of a end of a TTC that he was coming with a message from Shambhala for Agama and that he was a secret sadhu, swami from Rishikesh, part of a secret congregation of spiritualists who and so on. I have never seen so many people coming to a lecture as when that guy said this. The yoga hall was full and that guy was an impo schizophrenic imposter whom we exposed. He didn't know anything about being a swami or anything. I even didn't want to expose him further than a certain level because there were many decent people in the hall and they realized immediately where it was going. And that guy, two years later, he killed his girlfriend with a pipe hitting her on the head and then he stacked her in a fridge. He was a total bazako, but the hall was full. I have not seen the Agama Yoga Hall as full as when that guy came up with the good tidings. I come with a message from Shambhala. I did not get moved by it. I said, okay, show me your cards. If you have to tell me something, show me. If indeed you come from Shambhala, show me what you've got to show. No? And, but it was funny to see for the advanced pupils in Agama, advan uh, funny to see how much people need to believe something miraculous. And many people told me, Swami, why don't you tell to people more about your experiences, about the gurus? No, the name of Agama is suggested by Shankar Baba from Deoprayag, who alleged to be 240 years of age and who was judged like this by a journalist, a skeptical materialistic journalist. I don't even have a photo of Shankar Baba. I never really told the story of how I encountered him and what he told me and what advice he gave and other such things. It's because exactly this attempt to impress people with flowery things, you know, impress people by telling them a legend about Babaji and about this. And that legend could be true or it could be a trumped up story and nobody can really demonstrate it beyond a certain point. Again, don't understand me wrong. There are paranormal phenomena. There are, at least as far as I am concerned, I am satisfied for myself with seeing that there do exist miracles. There do exist parallel universes. There do exist higher entities. There is a Shambhala out there and all that. But today, medical doctors say, and many scientists, they say that even the Chinese medicine is a hocus-pocus because there is no qi. You cannot demonstrate even the existence of qi. Qi is considered by the enemies of acupuncture, homeopathy, and others like that, and qigong, of course, and other such sport, uh, not sports, but uh, disciplines. It is considered to be a hoax. You will find more than 51% of the doctors in a hospital and more than 51% of the researchers in a research institute on physics who will tell you authoritatively that there is no aura, 
there is no chi, there is no subtle energy. And if you feel it, you might be a schizophrenic. Really, one of our pupils in the school got diagnosed as schizophrenic because she told to her doctor that she believed that there was an energy field around every human being and every creature. This is as far as it goes. This is the eternal dialogue between believing and not believing. That's why this belief, of course you can, when you get smart enough, you realize that some beliefs are beneficial. As Jesus says, may it be to you according to your faith. He asks the Roman centurion, do you think that I can heal your servant? And the Roman centurion says, I don't even need you to come to my home because I'm not a Jew and I know that you Jewish guys have some rules about not entering in the houses of the sinners or of the heathens, of the pagans. So he says, just give the word, just say the word and my servant at home will be healed. And Jesus is flabbergasted. He tells to the whole world, he says, did you hear? I did not find such a faith in, even among you, the Israelis. I did not find faith like in this man. Like this man was a leap of faith. He could believe it. And then Jesus says, may it be done to you according to your faith. And 30 minutes later, he gets the news. Your servant is well, is healed suddenly. It, Jesus says, it's not my power that healed your servant. It's your faith which healed your servant. Therefore, if I can believe that, uh, I don't know, going to Jerusalem and touching something on the slab stone, which is supposed to be the tomb of Jesus, or going to Lourdes and drinking some holy water from Lourdes, will heal something, it's, let it be according to my belief. Because when I put my belief in radiation, chemistry, chemotherapy, and surgery, somebody who has got a cancer has a chance of survival of 3%. And therefore, I could as well say, I think I'm going to choose another belief system than the belief in surgery, pharmacology, and this and that. It's a belief system. If the mind indeed can produce effects according to that, then that is exactly it. That's why Blaise Pascal, being super intelligent, he says, ultimately, you choose if you want to believe or not to believe. Don't be a victim of your belief. I believe and I can't stop myself from believing. I can, but I choose to believe because it's the superior option and it is going to make my life better. It's the winning alternative in life. Thus, meditate carefully because here, indeed, Krishna says a great thing. Have, which having obtained, he thinks there is no other gain superior to it, wherein established, he is not moved even by heavy sorrows. Any one of you is afraid of pain and suffering, reach nirvana, reach enlightenment. Either it's a mental disease or not, it's a sure thing that when you are into it, you are not touched by sorrows anymore. It's a sort of eternal heroin, morphine shot in your brain, which makes that you are high and happy forever. Sorrows cannot touch you anymore. And then he continues concluding, 
in number 23, in the strophe number 23. Let that, this one which he spoke and he said, with the bliss higher than the senses and all that, let that be known by the name of yoga, the severance from union with pain. The normal person is united with pain. That's what Buddha says. The nature of existence is pain, suffering. And the yoga, although the name yoga means union, it means union with the opposite. So then Krishna calls it the severance from union with pain. You disunite from pain and you get united with something else. That something else is the cosmic consciousness, the divine aspect, that is samadhi, that is the aspect of yoga. So this which he kept describing for two weeks, we went through the amazing characteristics of it, and which I have even shown to you, it has a level which is non-demonstrable intellectually. Even I cannot demonstrate to you, and I'm open to admit, sure, you can as well believe the opposite. Ultimately, you choose what you want to believe. Let that be known by the name of yoga. That's what yoga is. And here, of course, yoga does not mean only the method, the science of yoga. Yoga means the result of yoga, means union, and therefore here the name of yoga is a simile, a synonym of samadhi. Yoga means samadhi, and actually it has been said. So let that, let that be known by the name of yoga, the severance from union with pain. Some people would say, well, but I'm not afraid of pain. That's fine. That's your psychology. Buddha wanted to solve pain. He saw pain and he probably felt, I dislike it. It spooks me. It scares the hell out of me and I want to do something about that. If you don't have that psychology, again, maybe you have to try another path. Maybe it's not that you are afraid of pain, but you are searching for infinite bliss. Or maybe you are searching for meaning of life. Or some, there can be other motivators, but this is definitely one of them. In this way, in the science of the Enneagram, of the nine temperaments of the human being, brought by Gurdjieff and later followers from the Sufi tradition from Central Asia, there exists a typology called number seven, which is called the enthusiast. And the, the, one of the main motivations of a number seven typology in the Enneagram, which is like one-ninth of you, are supposed to be sevens on the Enneagram. It's exactly like you'd say that somebody is a Virgo or a Taurus or something. If you are a number seven on the Enneagram, one of the main psychological motivators for number sevens is running from pain. Number sevens don't want to have pain and they also don't want to get bored. The things which frighten number sevens most are pain and boredom. That's why all their life is an attempt to stay away from pain and boredom. Such a number seven fully understands what Krishna says here and what Buddha did 
because if somebody comes and says, I found the method out of pain, then the number seven would say, me, 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 me. I'm all for that. Give me that method. That's exactly what I need. Other people would say, no, no, a little bit of pain is good. I love pain from time. Good. Then find another presentation of the spiritual truth which adapts more to your masochistic mentality in which pain, no pain, no gain. Fine, go that way. I don't want any pain to obtain gain. I, my philosophy is, let's get gain without pain, if possible. Let's pray to God to have gain without pain, because God is almighty and everything is possible. Why should I ask gain for pain? That's asking for trouble. I don't want any pain. So God, please give me gain, if it's possible, if I'm not completely idiotic in asking that, please give me gain without any pain, with some fun, if it's possible. Like, I can be completely shameless and bold in asking what I want to ask. But you see, some people would feel guilty by that. Some people would say, isn't that too much? Won't God get angry? Because for them, they look upon God as something which is righteous, and you have to be a decent citizen, and if you ask too much, you'll get spanked. But other people will say, God is the infinite potentiality. It's the infinite range of possibilities of the universe. Out of the infinite consciousness, anything can be given to you. Therefore, ask wisely. Don't ask, but again, there are people who, if they don't whip themselves a little bit, they don't feel that God loves them enough. And therefore, they are here meditate on what type of gifts from God are you asking for. Let that be known by the name of yoga, samadhi, spiritual union, the severance from union with pain. There is union with pain, there is union with God. When there is yoga, there is no ego, said one of my teachers, Suren Goyal, when there is ego, there is no yoga. When there is yoga, there is no pain. When there is pain, there is no yoga. That's at least what Krishna says here. This yoga should be practiced with determination and with an unresponding mind, or as Maharishi Mahesh Yogi translates it, and with the heart undismayed. Like, did you hear about people who started doing yoga, maybe even madly, and when they were 60 years old, they were in the middle of nowhere, not practicing yoga, because they had something more important to do? That's always the only danger which exists on the spiritual path. My teacher in chiropractice always said, the last moment decides. People would tell to him, because he was a very staunch steward of the old Christian ways, and people would argue with him because they were partly impressed by his saintliness and by his miraculous activity, and partly they were stunned by his staunch ways in which he was clinging to the traditional truth, and they would try to argue with him. And if they would argue too much, this man would never go into argument with anybody. 
like I tell you what I think the truth is. I am a person with spiritual authority and therefore I would tell you what the truth most probably is. And if you challenge me, I will get back to you and tell you once more. And if you continue, then I'm simply going to back down. And he would tell to people, my son, it is the end which decides. Which in case you didn't get it, he meant see you in paradise. I follow my path, you follow your path. In case you are right, you are probably going to make it to paradise. See you there. In case you are right, when we meet in paradise, you are going to tell me, see, Father, what I told you was working. It's fine. Show me. Demonstrate your point. If you've got the balls and you really believe in yourself that much, then you have determination and then your heart is undismayed. Your mind is unresponding. In the meaning, it does not respond to dismay and discouragement and lateral thorns which try to stop you from the path. Therefore, it is very important on the spiritual path, if you start it, to finish it. Because if you start 20 years of spiritual path, and after that you start doing abomination, death will catch you during the abomination stage. Therefore, it is not good. It is the end which decides because the way you die determines the outcome of the death and dying and what's going to happen to you in the afterlife. In a certain way, you can say, isn't it then more preferable that we should do 20 years of shit right now and then come back like the prodigal son, return and turn spiritual? It is, perhaps, but nobody can guarantee to you that you will live another 20 years and that you will be able to turn back or that your mind will not be so poisoned by weeds and evil samskaras that you will somehow find yourself incapable to meditate, pray, have aspiration and then it would be like uprooting yourself from hell. And that is why that's not really a wise solution and that is why the solution is have determination. There is a very, very beautiful paragraph in the movie called Peter and Paul in which Paul the Apostle of Christ is played by Anthony Hopkins and he makes a great role in that movie. And he plays Paul in the moment when Paul is kept under house arrest by Nero or Caligula or one of those, by one of the schizophrenic emperors of Rome. And uh, I think it was Nero. And uh, they, were they were supposing that scaring him with the imminent punishment of death, Paul was going to hold his horses and shut his mouth and be caught out, be frightened and kind of keep a low profile. And of course, Paul lives like there is no tomorrow. Paul gives it the whole hand and he converts the mob of Rome to Christianity big time. And then eventually Nero decides, let's cut the head of this guy off. He pisses me off really much. We tried, but it didn't work. It was a wrong policy. We should, have, we should have called him from the beginning because now he did even more damage. And then a soldier comes with a message. 
that there has been past judgment on it, and he has to present himself to judgment. And they all know if he is called the second time by Nero, this means penalty with death. And Paul does not try to run like he could maybe have tried to sneak out of the house by night and become a fugitive. Paul does not try to run, does not try to do anything, and he actually starts pouring wine to the people in there, and he is with a flushed face of bliss, and he starts, you know, cheering with people to drink a cup of wine with him. And people say, are you nuts? He's like, didn't you hear that Nero called you? And then Paul says that famous sentence which he wrote in one of his letters. It's actually his words, but transposed not like in a letter, but like he directly said those words to a person. And Paul says, in my life I've been persecuted, beaten, tortured, imprisoned. I have been done like this and like that. I had to undergo this and that. And I have also lived a long life, so I had to go through a lot of this stuff. And he says... However, I did not lose my faith. I ran the race and I managed to keep my faith till the last day, which is today. Like now the probability of me losing my faith in the next five hours is not there, right? So he, he says, I won. I, I can see the final line of the race and I'm coming on strong and I'm still on the horse. I'm still having faith. And he says, therefore, I'm going, but I'm going victorious. I won the great game of life, and now my reward awaits for me. He's happy to die eventually. He, if he's 60 years old and he has only three teeth left in his mouth, and he cannot do this and he cannot do that, and every time he stands up from a chair, his lower back hurts for five minutes, what is there to live for in this world? when his soul is rising to the third heaven in ecstasy. He wants to go in that ecstasy forever. The physical body can be discarded. Therefore, the end is the one that chooses. Therefore, you need to end on this glorious note. And that's why Krishna says this yoga should be practiced with determination. I'll get back to that in a second and with an unresponding mind, also translated as with the heart, undismayed. Like there is no disturbance which can disturb you from the path. Because that's what's happening all along the path. After having been 30 years on the spiritual path, I can tell you that that's most of the name of the game. Different forces, which in most traditions are called the dark side of the force, Demons, devils, and others, they constantly try to poke you down from your horse. They constantly try to make you lose your faith and get you off the path. Not off this path, off any spiritual path. In the moment when Luke Skywalker goes to Master Yoda to teach him the ways of the Jedi, the two dark lords, they meet in conference and one of them says we have a new enemy yes says the other Luke Skywalker must not be allowed to become a Jedi that's exactly what's happening when you come to yoga only you never realize it when you come to yoga somebody in a very dark corner of the universe says we've got a new potential enemy 
This one should not be allowed to become like Ramakrishna. This one should not be allowed to become like St. Teresa of Avila because if they become like that, they are going to hurt us plenty. And therefore, there is constantly an attempt to deviate. Every guru knows that his disciples are potentially easy to deviate from the path, sometimes by their own doubts, by their own weaknesses, by their own confusion, distraction, boredom, and sometimes by wolves dressed in sheep's skin, as I told you so much, because there is a lot of falsity, there is a lot of perverted, fake spirituality, especially in a Kali Yuga, and that becomes the preferred instrument of the demons to distract sincere spiritual seekers and put them into some dead-end lines. Like somebody comes and says, I am not doing this anymore, I have done some yoga, thank you, now I am going to do some shamanism or something, some witchcraft. And always when I have the opportunity, I tell them, did you choose well? How many people did reach enlightenment by shamanism? How can you trade one for the other? Or some other things. Some people say, I, don't, I'm, I did enough yoga, now I do NLP. And I tell them, can you compare yoga with NLP? NLP is most of the time a skeptical materialistic method. Very smart, it's true. And yoga is a method to reach nirvana. You cannot compare them really. To trade one for the other is a completely stupid thing. Therefore, it is a well-known, I as a teacher, I wouldn't have started teaching if I wouldn't know this. this are, a teacher knows many, many things which the pupils don't have a clue as to, and one of them is this. In the moment when you train people for spirituality, you train them to potentially become Jedis, enemies of the dark, and therefore, because of this, don't think that the dark just sits and laments. Oh my, oh my, Swami managed to bring another 50 people to yoga. What's going to come become of us? The demons are active, angry, dynamic. They have initiatives of their own, and therefore they act. That is why those of you who are in spirituality for a longer time, you cannot fail to notice that there is a battlefield. That there are people come and they fall off the path. And people who miraculously didn't fall off the path, <clears throat> they say, I don't know what became my friend. My friend, you can ask senior pupils <clears throat> in Agama. They have seen some of their friends going off the yoga path and instead doing things which to them, at least to these ones, to the older pupils, they sound like stupid. And they shrug their shoulders and they say, I don't know why. Remember that when you practice spirituality, it is much better if you die in it, if you keep it to the end. That's why the Christian mystics, they describe the daily life martyrdom. That there is a so-called martyrdom of the daily life. Do you think it was easy for the fathers of the desert to do prayer all day long and to stay with God for a lifetime in the most 
harsh conditions, in the most terrible conditions, without water, without food, without clothes, without this and that. It was not. And every day they had to wake up and to say, okay, there's another day of struggle. And the struggle is, I need to be like Paul. I need to reach the last day of my life with my faith untouched, intact. And then I can drink a glass of wine and say, I won the race. I made it to the last day. That's why in Christianity, they never proclaim saints during the life. Because if they proclaim you today a saint, then two years later, although you have been eligible for saintliness, you can simply lose your faith and fall off the path. Christian mystics say, as long as you are alive, until the last day of your life, you are still temptable and passable to fall off the path. When you have died, and when the truth comes to the surface after 40, 50, 100 years, and everything which you have been and done has become known, then the Christian church can decide if they are going to make you into a saint. Today, especially the Roman Catholic Church, has started making compromises on this because there are no more saints. And then they start making saints out of every social reformer and out of every charitable person, although that's absurd because that's not the definition of saintliness. The saintly person is a person that is blessed by the Holy Ghost and it is a person that has reached the grace of God and which is submerged, bathed, showered by the grace of God. That's the saint. And that is why realize that the spiritual path requires this perseverance. The biggest danger in the spiritual path is to abandon, to, to become slack, to become lazy, and to get tired. It is happening, I told to you sometimes, it is happening very much around the midlife crisis, which is for most men and women between 40 and 50. Between 40 and 50 people go through their midlife crisis and that's when I have seen most people giving up their spirituality and trading it for some watered-down version of it. I have seen somebody in my life who traded yoga for something at least as powerful as that, for spiritual efforts which were at least as big as that, or maybe doubling up one's efforts. I took off my head in front of that person and I said, I don't agree with you. I still think that yoga is the preferable path. That's why I follow it. Because for me, from my standpoint, that's the better path. But at least I take off my head in front of you that you are not a person who sold out. You are not a person who fell off the path. If you hopped from the path of yoga on another path, you tightened up the screw even more just to make sure that you are not getting tricked by the demons in trading down. You traded up, so to speak. And that's why, that's what we say, that's the biggest danger. I can guarantee that whoever does enough spiritual practice reaches spiritual realization in different forms. All the people in my life until today 
among not only my pupils, but among my peers, because I started doing yoga, or at one point or another, I had colleagues that were studying with some of the same gurus with whom I studied. And all among those who until today didn't make it to any considerable spiritual understanding are those that fell off the path. I don't know anyone among them who is hard on the path and they shrug their shoulders and I say, I don't know why God is upset at me because everybody seems to have achieved something and I'm still hammering here in the dark and I'm getting nothing. I haven't seen that case. But yes, I have seen plenty of cases of people falling off the path. <coughs> Remember, in a generation, how many saints are being produced? How many enlightened beings is the earth producing during a generation? Not many. Let's say perhaps a hundred, which is an exaggerated number. It's not even a hundred. How many people start practicing spirituality? Tens of millions maybe hundreds of millions in a generation time, maybe a billion nowadays with this overpopulation. Out of those a hundred million, a hundred, one in a million makes it to the end. Hundred million people start running the marathon and a hundred people run to the final line. That's the natural selection in spirituality. Does it mean you shouldn't do it? No, even the people who don't reach the end, they reach three quarters of it and then in the next life they will not start from zero. So it's worth it that you do it anyway. Krishna says in a previous chapter, which I commented already, he says on the path of yoga, no effort will ever get lost. Every effort which you put is like you are laying bricks onto a wall, on a masonry wall. If you lay 10 bricks today, you've got 10 bricks less to lay tomorrow. Therefore, everything which you do in spirituality is worth it. But remember, every guru is aware of the fact that not everybody sees the end line of the race. And that's why Krishna says, what do, why do, you, need, what do you need for that? He says, with an unresponding mind, like a horse that has lateral preventers, and the horse is not allowed to look to the left, to the right, so it doesn't change its mind. The horse can see only forward. That's where you go, because that's where the coach wants the horse to go, so that the horse doesn't get funny ideas. Spiritual practitioners, they sometimes put glasses like this, and they say, that's where I want to go. I will have an unresponsive mind. Because all those things are collateral temptations from the standpoint of a spiritual practitioner. And the very important word where perhaps I will start from next time when I'll continue with this, that this yoga should be practiced with firm resolve. You have a proverb in your first month handouts in Agama. If you want to drown yourself, don't torture yourself with shallow water. Bulgarian proverb, very wise. Like if you want to reach nirvana, don't think that shallow efforts will do. I remember a Shaolin monk who came at the invitation of an acquaintance of mine in the West, in one of the European countries, 
to make a workshop on Qigong and Nei Kung and some of these mysterious Taoist arts which are supposed to have paranormal and spiritual effects. And this monk kept talking only about health and healing. He told them, if you stretch your hamstring, you are going to live longer, you have to twist your bones, your joints, you have to keep elastic. He told them a lot of Taoist gymnastic things with reference to health, longevity, and stuff like this, which are very interesting. And then these people, seeing that after two days he didn't come to the spiritual things, they said, but what about the, this and that? And then this monk, who was Chinese, rude, probably a bit unripe spiritually, about 35 years old or something, maybe 40, he just looked at them in a pretty negative way, and he simply said, guys, you're living in an European city and with jobs, you've got absolutely no chance. That's why I'm not talking to you about that. Like he told them, he said, if you want nirvana, come to the Shaolin temple and spend 20 years in meditation. That's how people get nirvana. If you think you are going to do it by doing 45 minutes of meditation now and then, you are kidding. You are kidding yourselves. So he said, I'm not even talking about these things. This is a rude, cold shower, but it has a part of the truth to it. It's not always true because Ramana Maharishi reached enlightenment in 30 minutes, but that happened once in a century as well. And that's why what I'm trying to say here is there is always a natural selection, and one of the things required is determination. Don't waste your time. You want to practice spirituality, practice it with determination. In my life in communist Romania, I have learned this lesson the hard way. In 1982, the crazy dictator of communist Romania called Ceausescu got paranoid that the yogis are people that can kill him by parapsychological methods and that intellectuals gather in yoga classes and circles and they conspire to overthrow communism. And he simply gave a directive that yoga should be forbidden. And ridiculously, Romania was the only European country in which yoga was forbidden for seven years till the fall of the communism. It was forbidden by decree, by law. If you did yoga, in an, they couldn't stop you from doing it in your house. But you didn't know where from because there were no books about it. All the books had been obliterated out of libraries and any public domain. And in those days, there was no satellite television. There was no internet. There was no, even the photocopying was still a rare and tedious process and all that. And if you did any organized activity of yoga, you risked to go in prison. I have at least two people that I know who have gone to prison for the simple fault of having taught yoga or organized things about yoga in spite of this regulation. And then in that time to do yoga and to teach yoga, that's what showed what people are made of. Today, when you go to Romania, you find the whole madness of the new age. There are clairvoyants, prophets, bioenergotherapeuts, people who channel spaceships, 
people who do 15 styles of yoga and of Qigong and so on, in 1989 at the set of the communism, in Romania there were about 25 people practicing yoga. Those were the yogis and the people who had enough determination to say, even if it costs me my life, I'm going to do this thing. Those were the people who were ready to get beaten, tortured, arrested, and maybe physically eliminated by the political police of Romania, which was a communist police without scruples. And there were still 25 people who said, in spite of that, that's what I'm going to do. That was the number. That's how low the number went in seven years of forbiddance. That's why I had the opportunity. This was an invaluable experiment for my life because I have seen then who is indeed determined. How many people will go the full Monte? Very few people would be ready to go the full Monte. That's what Krishna says. You have to do this yoga should be practiced with determination. Not dabbling into it like, oh, it's just a curiosity. Of course, this thing scares you because most of you are wishy-washy, foggy, beginners, don't have enough energy, there is no clarity, you don't know what it's all about. And you say, is Swami going to ask us to commit ourselves tonight? Of course, I'm not asking you to commit yourselves tonight. But remember that non-commitment is also a form of weakness and cowardice. People cannot commit themselves to a love story. People cannot commit themselves to an ideal, to a task, because people say, what if I get married to this person and tomorrow I fall, I find someone who is even more wonderful? Then what am I going to do? Then people say, you better don't get married so that you can keep all your choices up open, all your options available. That is a lack of determination. Like you are not ready to go the full Monty and you know it from the beginning and that's a weakness. I remember when I toured India for the first time visiting lots of the gurus, still met and took teachings from some of the major gurus, thank God, who are still alive in those days. I am meeting at the Shivananda Ashram, a woman who was from Denmark, and I was living in Denmark in those days. And in Denmark, of course, I met lots of uncommitted people who would, as a matter of principle, not commit themselves to anything, especially spiritual things which are so uh, immaterial, so subtle. And then... This woman tells us, I was with, together with two other Danish people who are traveling together with me, and then this woman tells us, oh, I've been at this lecture. Have you been at this lecture at Swami Krishnananda in the Shivananda Ashram? Oh, I've been at the meditation yesterday also. Oh, I'm going every day to the meditation. So then I, naive being, I'm saying, so you are with the Shivananda Ashram, no? Because like she was going there every day and clearly sympathetic with that. And she shook herself like a dog coming out of the water, you know. She shuddered like this and she said, no, I'm with nobody. Like, why not? When you have a child, you are not with your child till death. When you are married with somebody or love with somebody, you are not with them till death. If you believe in Jesus and love Jesus, you are not with Jesus till death. Like, what does it mean you are with nobody? Where does that come, this fear 
of committing yourself. Say, if I'm going to do yoga, I'm at least for a year or two, I can give myself a deadline like a tapas, but when I do this, I will do it with determination. Not like a wishy-washy weakling. Not like a confused person. Because that's... No, I don't say that. Krishna says that this yoga which gives you immortal bliss, infinite bliss, and cuts you off from pain and suffering, this yoga should be practiced with determination. Yoga without determination will give weak results, flabby results, with determination and with your heart undismayed. That simply says, once you chose your path, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm not saying that you should absurdly do that. It is possible that in your life you discover that you made some choices and they were profoundly toxic, profoundly poisonous. I'm not saying you should persevere diabolically in mistake, like Machiavelli says, error is human, persevering in error is diabolic. I'm not saying that once you have seen you did an error and you are doing something demonic, you should continue with that. But as long as you haven't reached such an awareness, persevere. Don't allow yourself disturbed by anything. That's the principle of tapas. You practice your spirituality and say, I shall give it a try for three years or 12 years or whatever it is or five days. And for that time, I'm going to go 100%. 100%. Only like this you can try something and see how it works. Remember this great teaching from Krishna about how yoga should be practiced. This yoga should be practiced with determination and with a mind unresponding to any external, undesponding, I could even say, like a mind which never becomes despondent. Like, ah, oh, well, I think it's not working. What if that is just telepathic, energetic pressure from the demons to discourage you when you are 95% there? If you don't see it coming, how would you know? Wouldn't it be maddening to know that exactly when you are about to break through, you quit? That's ridiculous. That's why you can't afford that. And as long as you don't have the feeling, I'm harming people, I'm doing something demonic here, which in, in which case it's okay to say, to reevaluate your ways, not to persevere into error, but otherwise yoga can hardly be considered an error when so many people get so many amazing good things from it, and then for the period of time where you do it, do it. Really do it. This wishy-washy thing shows mental weakness, and metaphorically speaking, it shows no balls. Or in the language of Brahmacharya, it shows no ojas. The sexual energy is down, and people don't have the madness even of falling in love, even of rising to a challenge. Only when you have a lots of virya, lots of efficiency, then you start doing yoga, you do yoga with virya, with efficiency 
and you obtain results. So meditate on those teachings. We have crossed a few beautiful teachings here of Krishna through a few beautiful teachings. As usually, let us now remain for a couple of minutes in silence to appease our minds and to allow to this message to sink in deeply to the profound levels of the being. And then we can stop tonight's discourse. And that will do for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining us in the satsang. With this, we finished for tonight. See you in the next.